Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We'll be starting there in just a few moments. 1 Timothy, the first chapter. The Bible that's in the pew, if you want to borrow a Bible there, will be around 1053 or 1054. It's where we'll begin in just a moment. Uh, allow me to mention in a few things that uh, are reminders, but they're important reminders for us all. Keep in mind that uh, the feasibility study that is uh, just beginning to be underway, one of the things that the firm that's doing this study is spending hours and hours upon is learning us as a congregation so that they can learn the needs so that the facility that they would suggest that this is what would work for you guys is, uh, is appropriate, is best. And so the only way they can do that is to hear from us. And so uh, the elders are really encouraging you. You know, this, this isn't one of those things where, well, we're going to put it out there so that we can say we listen to everybody. They are encouraging us, please fill out one of these cards. And if you need to attach a long piece of paper with it, uh, we need to hear from you. What is it that you in the ministries that you're a part of and what you experience in the life of this building and coming to worship and to Bible class and the ministries that you do, what is it that if you could say, you know, if, if we are going to build another building, this would be really beneficial to our work or to our life within this facility. And so please be sure and complete that. You can pick these cards up there at Information Center and there's a box to drop them in there and uh, it would just be very, very helpful. And uh, also to do it pretty quickly because this study is, is getting underway and the firm is wanting to hear uh, just in the next week or two what we're thinking. And so please uh, do that if you will. That'd be very helpful. Also, it's already been announced, but just a reminder that the Ferguson's baby tea we are accustomed around here for baby teas being on Sunday afternoon, but keep in mind this one is this coming Saturday afternoon. And so it's a wonderful time to let Megan and Doug know how much we love them and then also meet the twins. And so keep that in mind. Also, speaking of, of children, John White and his family will leave this coming Wednesday to uh, adopt Joe from China and we're thankful for that. And let's be prayerful this week uh, for their journey and for his safe return. Also, we're mindful of all the weather we've had this past week. And, uh, you know, this is the type of fellow that probably would say, I'd rather you not mention that. But Bobby Cole spent hours yesterday evening clearing off the parking lot that was just covered. And uh, we just greatly appreciate that. It's wonderful to have uh, so many in this congregation that are willing to take whatever resources God has given them and say, hey, I'll put it to work in God's kingdom. And Bobby has done that all throughout the years. And we are so thankful. Also keep in mind for our e-messenger that goes out on Monday, it'd be neat to put a few more of the shamas that, that you have written by hand and that you've posted maybe on your door, your workplace. And I've received a few more this week that we'll include tomorrow, Lord willing. And uh, if you would like to send a picture of yours, uh, do so at david.shannon at mountjuliet.org. And uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from that. It's exciting tonight that we have several that are not here because they are participating in our high school age boys that participate in the circuit riders. Uh, they are conducting the evening worship service at Lagardo this evening and we are thankful for them. And speaking of, of young people uh, being active, the last several weeks around this building, this facility, there have been young men and young women, the young 
uh, ladies serving Christ and the young soldiers have been so active in their training and then their participation and learning how to lead. And we are so thankful for that. And you know from the announcements, uh, there are several that are going to have banquets and programs and teach classes and et cetera uh, this coming week and the next uh, week to come. And so let's be mindful and be encouraging to those young people and be prayerful. And let's, let's make sure that, that we let them know that they are investing their life in, in one of the most, in the most important area that they could. And that is uh, in the Lord. You know, as we think about, uh, again, the weather this past week, and I know there were so many of you that just on your own went out and took care of neighbors and even called shut-ins that we had and, and, and in our family. And, and that, that is just awesome. I want to just quickly mention to you, Jennifer Etheridge posted on a Mount Juliet Facebook page that if all in all of this situation, if you need help with groceries, please let us know. And, and there were four or five families that responded back of how this has created a situation in their life and they need help. But what was also interesting is several families at Mount Juliet saw that and said, Jennifer, we want to help you. And then there were several from the community that said, that is really an awesome thing to do. Can we meet you at the grocery store and can we help also? It's pretty neat when one person steps up and just says, let's love our neighbor as ourselves." The impact that that makes in a community. Our lives truly is like a, a pebble dropped in water. The ripple effect always, always happens. It will be a positive ripple or it'll be a negative ripple, but it always happens. Sayings. You probably grew up around some sayings. Probably the sayings I grew up around would be a little bit more country than the sayings maybe that you grew up around. You don't sell your mule to buy a plow. Then there's some people that try to put some of the sayings in the Bible you know that, that cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, it's definitely not in the Bible, and I don't really know for sure if it's true in life, but a lot of people like to throw that one around. When we think about particular sayings, have you ever thought about what sayings would the early church say? And think about it. The early church, as we read in, in the scriptures, when, when it wasn't just recorded in a historical sense, it was recorded of, hey, this is what we're living right now. Think about what sayings they would have said because they were first-generation Christians. They didn't have generations to understand the theology of Christ. Here, here is a generation, and maybe even going into the second generation of Christians, where they're really trying to comprehend incarnation. They're trying to understand God coming near in flesh. They're trying to understand what it means to be sanctified and set apart into the church. And you know, it's interesting in a culture that would have been very oral because there would have been much fewer books. There would not have been publications as we know it. There would not have been announcements of, hey, we're going to send out an e-messenger tomorrow. So much of what they would have constantly been thinking about would have been said. And so you can imagine in that culture, there, there were constant sayings the early church said. What do you think they would have been? I'd like to spend a few weeks on Sunday evenings going over a few of the five times that Paul says in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus 
This is a faithful saying. And I'd like for us to consider, if it was so important that the early church was constantly saying it, and if it was so important that Paul said, as he wrote to young preachers, and this is what's interesting, Paul never talks about those sayings except to the young preachers. He only has that kind of language when he's talking to Timothy and when he's talking to Titus. And you say, why? I don't know why. I'm just saying that's interesting, that that's when he talks about it. And so here's an older preacher and he's studying with younger preachers. He's writing uh, epistles, letters to younger preachers. And five times he says, I want to talk with you about some of these faithful sayings that we are so accustomed to. Now, as we're about to get into this, I'd like for you to think for just a moment, if you had to reduce the gospel down to one saying, one phrase, one sentence, what would be your sentence to tell the gospel? If you had to come up with a faithful saying to express the gospel, what would your saying be? Let's study that tonight to see what it would be or what it was in the first century. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. Let's jump right in the first chapter in verse 15, not getting at this very moment a lot of the context and then we'll back up. But let's look at this saying, 1 Timothy, the first chapter in verse 15. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Twice out of the five times he says it's a faithful saying, he attaches this follow-up. It's not only a faithful saying, it's worthy of all acceptance. In other words, there is not anybody on earth that does not need to accept what I'm about to say. Stop and think about it. There's a lot of things that you and I could say, and it applies very well to us, but it might not apply to people on the other side of the world. And so Paul is saying, hey, not only is this faithful, not only is this a trustworthy statement, this is something that everybody in the world ought to accept. And here's his statement. How would you reduce the gospel into one phrase? This is the way the early church did it. And this is what Paul magnifies in Holy Scripture now. And he says, this is worthy of all acceptance. And in, in your English, it's probably going to be about nine words. In the Greek, it's going to be about eight words. He reduces the gospel. The first century church took the gospel and reduced it to about eight words. And it's this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul added on his personal touch to that statement. And he said, of whom I am chief. What an amazing, simple, beautiful study. If it was so important that that became a frequent saying, hey, you know Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yeah. I know that. I live for that. Somebody, somebody sees a first century Christian at work. I don't, I don't get your, your Christianity. What, what in the world is that all about? Oh, it's about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Really? Explain that to me. What does that mean? Isn't that a beautiful concept of the gospel? 
Let's, let's break that down in just a moment, but, but just so we can get the setting, because anytime we study a verse, it's, it's better to leave it in the context that it's written. So scan with me just a couple of things here. Let's back up to verse 12. And notice in verse 12, he begins with this tremendous gratitude. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. So this paragraph is going to begin with this, just almost like an explosion of gratitude to say, I'm thankful. And, and I would put in here in verse 12, it's implied that he's saying, I'm thankful that I'm saved. But he jumps right to the point to say, I'm thankful that I'm saved and I am in ministry. I get to tell other people about God. I get to serve other people to God's glory. But then immediately he exposes probably one of the big reasons why he was so thankful. He remembered what he used to be. Look in verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, you remember a, a blasphemer is someone who speaks derogatory of God. And he says, I, I used to be that one. As a matter of fact, when I would run upon Christians that wouldn't speak bad about Christ, I would threaten them unless they would blaspheme Christ. He remembers himself as that way. He says also, I was a a persecutor. I bring harm in their life. And an insolent man. He says, I was an angry, I was a violent man. He says, but, see that's the huge contrast, I obtained mercy. Now we're going back to the thought of verse 1. I obtained, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 12, the first verse we just read. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And now what he's going to do, so think, think about this kind of in an order here. Verse 12, let me tell you how thankful I am. I'm in ministry, I'm saved. And listen, that means a lot to me because I remember how horrible I used to be. And the only reason I can rejoice in this because of what I used to be is because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. In other words, Paul's saying, do you realize what it took to save me? He says, it was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And so now he's looked at his life and it's caused him to think about what? This saying that people say, you know, this, this, my life, it makes me think about this saying that it's such a faithful saying and everybody ought to accept it. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. And then he says, by the way, now that I think about it, I'm a pretty good example. I am a pattern for everybody. Because somebody could look at this and say, oh, go back to verse 13. I can't believe if you were a persecutor and, and if you were violent and you were a blasphemer, I can't believe the Lord would ever save you. And so that brings us to verse, to verse 16 where he says, listen, this is just a pattern of God's long suffering. The emphasis is upon what God can do. Look, this is how horrible I am. Look what God can do. Let's read verse 16. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And it is out of this that it is as if Paul cannot control himself to hold back to say, Okay, I've thought about this. It's a pattern for everybody. That's just how great God's long suffering is. And you know what? Let's just take a moment to praise him. And we have a doxology in 17. Look at this. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Brethren, when's the last time you thought about your salvation? And after you spend a few minutes thinking about it, you just burst out in a prayer to God. God, I've got to thank you. You are so wise. You are so great. You are deserving of all honor, of all glory. You are to be praised. And wouldn't it be horrible if someone said, you know, I hadn't even really thought about my salvation lately. Wouldn't that be horrible? When the first century, that was part of the faithful sayings. That was what they talked about regularly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save us, to save sinners. Let's think about these eight or nine words here for just a moment, and then the lesson is yours. Christ Jesus. When you hear that, does that sound maybe just a little bit? I'm not saying big time. Does that sound just a little bit backwards? Because you notice most of the writers in the New Testament say Jesus Christ. But for some reason, Paul loved Christ Jesus to be the description of his Savior. About 26, 25, 26 times he chose to say Christ Jesus, where about six times he said Jesus Christ. It's interesting, no matter which order you put it, I'm not saying there's huge significance to that. It's just interesting to note that. But I say that just to draw your attention to the description of Christ. Everyone in the first century would have known that Jesus lived. Jesus of Nazareth lived. I say everyone, I mean in that area where they're living. Everyone would have known that Jesus lived. And so you see, it's not a fact of you'd walk up to someone that maybe was in the Jerusalem area or the, the Galilean area. You know, you wouldn't walk up to them and say, hey, hey, do you think Jesus of Nazareth ever lived? Well, of course he lived. Do you know the stir that took place uh, a few Passovers ago? Do you remember him being crucified? Do you not remember it getting dark in the middle of the day? Do you not remember the, the veil and the temple rent? Do you not remember some people were resurrected? Do you not remember there was an earthquake? I think we all know, everybody knows, that this man Jesus Christ lived and he died in Jerusalem. We got that. Paul knew Jesus lived. But he also went around persecuting people because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And he persecuted people that believed Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. I can't help but wonder if that maybe is one of the reasons why he loved to lead with the name Christ. Because the Christ means the glorified one. Or what we sometimes would think of just the name Messiah. In other words, it had been very, very difficult for Saul to become a believer in the Christ. And so he begins by quoting this faithful saying, Christ Jesus. What did Christ Jesus do? Which, by the way, refers to incarnation. But also this next part of the phrase does too. Christ Jesus came into the world. Notice, he didn't say, and, and John loved to talk about this many times in, in the Gospel of John, and, and the emphasis was always placed in the language that it wasn't that he began to be existing as a baby. Now, he already existed before he became a baby born from the womb of Mary. It's just he took upon himself the form of flesh 
to come into the womb. But he began before that. You probably know this, and, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but just quickly, let's look at a couple of things. John loved to emphasize this. Look at John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, John 1 and verse 1, it's page 938 in the Bible that's in your pews there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So notice it didn't say he created the Word in the beginning. He was already there in the beginning. Look at verse 9. Look for the Word came or come. That was the true light. This is still John 1 and 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Look over the third chapter in verse 19, the same language. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so the language is very clear throughout Scripture that Jesus existed, of course, before he was born upon this earth, and that points to incarnation, God in flesh. He was eternal before he became fleshly. And after he died and was resurrected, of course, he still is eternal. So we understand that, at least the best that our, our, our weak minds can understand eternity and et cetera, but we understand that to that degree, I hope, right? But have you ever thought about the teaching out of 2 Corinthians 8, how it ties into him leaving heaven and coming to earth and how that affects us. Drop back to 2 Corinthians, the eighth chapter, quickly. I, I, this, this is just an awesome passage. I love 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Even though he was speaking, uh, Paul was speaking to the people of Corinth about a specific collection that was being taken, the principles about giving at all times are, are rooted in this passage. And so, so much about what God was trying to teach us about giving, they're, they're rooted in this specific task that Paul was trying to get the people to give. And so what he does in the eighth chapter in verse one is he says, okay, I want to talk to you about giving. And we all learn better with illustrations and examples, right? And so he says to the Corinthians, I want to throw out an example that maybe will help you understand. Be generous like the people of Macedonia. That's verse one. They were poor and they gave generously out of their poverty. But, and so he talks about that a little bit. And then we come around to that paragraph beginning in verse 8, and he says, well, let me throw out another illustration. Another person that was very generous that we can learn from was Jesus Christ. And, and, and when we read verse 9 here, I want you to think about, even though we do not see the exact phrase that Jesus came to this earth, it's obvious that's what he's talking about. And, and as we read this, see what it does for us. Look at verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now maybe there's someone that, that's studying along here tonight and, and you're sitting there saying, I didn't follow that. I didn't see anything about Jesus coming to this earth in that passage we just read. Yeah, you did. Do you notice there when he says that though he was rich, he's talking about Christ's existence in heaven. He had spiritual riches. He had, he had the comfort that anyone could ever want. And then you imagine being in heaven where everything is absolutely perfect and looking down to earth and you imagine, you imagine angels or I don't know if they understood that. Maybe it wasn't angels. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's the Father. I don't even know if they talked about it, but let's just imagine they did. What if they looked over and down to earth and they're sitting in the realm of heaven and, and imagine them saying, hey, you know, it's not going to be long before you go down there to live. You know what a lot of us would have said? I, I don't want to go down there. I'm in heaven. 
Why would you want to go down to the poverty of earth? Things are tough down there. Things are not perfect. Things are hard. And then think about it from a spiritual standpoint. I'm up here where everything is holy. Everything is of love. Everything is righteous. You want me to go down there where the world is ruled by flesh, by hatred. It's not a good place to be. Okay, so let's say that we all grasp that. And we say, okay, I understand he left the riches of heaven to come down to the poverty of earth. Come down. Remember the faithful saying, Christ Jesus came. What's the benefit for you and I? Here in this one verse, he says, let me tell you the benefit. Because all of us are in spiritual poverty without Christ coming to this earth. But because Christ came to this earth, leaving riches of heaven to come to the poverty of this earth, now we in our poverty through Christ can have the riches of the spiritual that is to come through heaven. Isn't that awesome? He was rich and became poor so we in our poverty can become rich. And all of that is spiritual language. What, what a powerful, powerful understanding. And from that, I, I'm wanting you to, for all of us to kind of jump on board with this saying. So in this saying, when you say, you know, it's a brief saying, what's the big deal about it? Every word of this saying is huge. Christ Jesus, Christ the Messiah, God coming to this earth. Christ Jesus, he took up on flesh. He was Jesus of Nazareth. What did he do? He came to this earth. Why did he come to this earth? So we could be lifted up from this earth to live with him for eternity. Christ Jesus came to what? Christ Jesus came to this world. Now, when we look at that phrase world, I'd, I'd like for you to note and be turning, if you will, to 1 John and, and we're going to look at some verses in just a minute. Our first John, we'll begin in ver the second chapter. We've been talking about Jesus coming to this earth, and he did. But for a moment, think about this faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why do you think that that saying chose to use the word world and not the word earth? The emphasis in this saying is not simply and only the fact of a geographical place. Oh, he left heaven and is he going to go to Mars? Is he going to, you know, it wasn't just a geographical description. It was a spiritual description. The world. What is the world in this context? The word is used about six times in 1 John, the second chapter. And let's begin in verse 15, 16, 17 to get an idea do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, now here's a pretty good description of the people that make up the world and, and the uh, power and the dominion that rules the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but what? It's of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Christ Jesus came to a place where sinners lived. You remember how often Jesus was rightly accused of associating with sinners? Why do you eat with sinners? Why do you spend time 
And see, the early church got it. Because when they described the gospel, they described Jesus leaving heaven and coming down to sinful people. He came down to the world. While we're so close, just flip a page. You go to the fifth chapter and let's look at verse 19. It's kind of the, it is the same teaching, the same language here, but let's read it since we're close. Look at 1 John 5 and 19. Obviously, John is about to close out his, his short letter here of 1 John. And notice what he says in 19. For we know that we are of God. See, now this, this is a distinction between people who belong to God and people who are in the world. So notice this, we know that we are of God. And now he's gonna switch over. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. People in the world can't leave the world on their own. They're under the sway. In other words, they're under the power of the wicked one. Well, how could anybody leave the world? You know, several months ago, we spent several lessons intentionally trying to mention the word sanctification often. You remember that, the idea that the world is here and the Lord came to this earth to sanctify us. The word church, ecclesia, the called out. What does it mean to be saved, to be rescued? To be rescued from what? To be rescued from the world so that we can be a part of the saved. So that we can become a part of, that's who the church is. The church is the saved. They are the sanctified, the set apart. Christ Jesus came into the world so you and I could leave the world. But we can't do it on our own power. We have to have Christ. We have to have Christ, a redeemer. Back to this morning's lesson. We have to have someone that will rescue us out of the world. And what a beautiful thought. Now with that in mind, be turning to John, the third chapter. And let's add on one more phrase. We're, we're working towards the end of this phrase. And then, and then that's the end of this beautiful saying, this faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance. And, and so we think about Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save. He came into the world to save. Now, we recognize John 3, verse 16, very, very quickly. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he come, Christ Jesus, come to the world? Why? To condemn the world? No. He came to the world to save the world. Now someone could rightfully ask, and it'd be a good question to ask, but, but I know there's going to be a day of judgment. And I know on this day of judgment, there's going to be a divide, and there's going to be people that are condemned, and there's going to be people that are saved. So how can the Bible truthfully say Christ didn't come to this world to condemn? Well, he didn't. Do you realize when Jesus came to this world, everybody that was a sinner, that's us, right, was already condemned. Someone is drowning in the swimming pool. Are you with me in this analogy? They're already drowning right now. And the lifeguard comes running up. 
Now, are you going to look at the lifeguard, he or she, and you, are you going to say, oh, I wonder if they're here to drown this person or to save this person? Well, they're already drowning. The lifeguard is there to reach out and to save the one that's drowning. Listen, before Jesus Christ came to this earth, everybody was already condemned in sin. Jesus coming was to save. Remember the word save is to rescue or to deliver. He was coming to save those who were condemned and those that would choose him. Remember this morning we talked about the lesson. We can receive or we can reject the Lord. We choose him or we reject him. And so those that reject the Lord are saying, I don't want to be saved. He came to the world. And so those that don't want to be saved, they continue to be condemned. He came into the world to save whom? The last part of that faithful saying is, He came into the world to save sinners. Who would that be? When we look at Romans, the third chapter, it's very convicting. When in Romans 3, he says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. When he says in verse 21, or in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or just quickly, I'll read 1 John, the third chapter, in verse 4, where he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You see, all of us have approached the will of God and have transgressed it. All of us have had things that God would ask us to do that we have not done. All are sinners. And Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. Now, that's difficult more so for our society today to probably buy into than maybe than what it was just 20 years ago. Because today we all want to tell ourselves, you're all right, I'm all right. And brethren, what we need to accept is the fact that if we're all all right, we don't need Jesus. If we're all all right, Jesus told us a bunch of things that aren't true. If we're all all right, Jesus was really foolish. Because not only did he tell us a bunch of things that wasn't true, he died for them. And it was all not true. The reality is, Without Jesus, we're all condemned. We're all sinners. And so there's this faithful saying that's worthy of all acceptance. And that is, Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Tonight, how would you reduce the gospel to one phrase? As you think about that, I would just urge you as we close to think about this. When you think about your life as being a religious person, as being a spiritual person, please don't ever draw conclusions and have those final thoughts unless it includes the resurrected Lord. Our religion is nothing without the resurrected Lord. Our life is meaningless without the resurrected Lord. And so tonight, I hope that all of us have some kind of faithful saying that runs through our mind often. And I hope that that saying is a dependency upon God.
upon Christ and looking forward to His return. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, draw closer to the Lord. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ or you're ready to be restored, our goal is that all of us live for the Lord and spend eternity with Him and tell as many other people and let's link hands, let's link arms, let's link lives and have a common love in Jesus. And let's move toward eternity.